Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast, I'm talking to Professor Wendy Barclay, a virologist, about the role of viruses in causing pandemics and how they're all around us, despite being very small. Professor Wendy Barclay, CBE, Action Medical Research Chair of Virology and Head of Department of Infectious Disease at Imperial College. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm much more interested in bacteria than viruses because they are much more complicated. Um, but you stick with simple things, uh, Wendy, viruses. So wh- wh- how would you define a virus? What, what, what is a virus? Well, the, the classic definition of a virus is that it's an obligate intracellular parasite. But what that really means is that on the outside of a cell or in the outside of a host, a person, a virus is completely inert. It is, as you say, so very simple that it can't really do anything for itself. And the only way that it can replicate itself uh, is to get inside uh, an individual. It could be um, a person or an animal or, of course, a plant or even a bacteria, because bacteria have their own sets of viruses. All of those viruses rely on the host to carry out essential functions for them because they're so simple that they can't uh, encode their own functions. So they have to borrow them from somebody else. So these are incredibly simple microbes um, that when they're outside of a cell, they're they're essentially dead things. They can't do anything. They can't make new viruses. Um, And when they're inside a cell, Are they alive then? Well, yes, that's a philosophical debate, I think, about what it is to be alive. They certainly, inside a cell, uh, carry out functions which we associate with life, with some of the definitions of life, replication, for example. Um, But there's lots of things that we define as life that, that viruses don't do, even when they're inside cells. So, I mean, I I think I I consider viruses um, perpetuating things, things that perpetuate, but I don't think they tick all the boxes for classical definition of being alive. Great. So, uh, I mean, they they are so small that we can't see them even with a light microscope. So how did people first realise that there were viruses out there? Mm, Oh, that's a, a great question. I mean, you know, classically, if you if you look back uh, in history, there's evidence of viruses in things like those classical paintings of um, of Dutch tulips, uh, because a lot of the stripes and things that we see in plants are the result of viruses. But of course, back then, people didn't really know uh, that was caused by a virus. Um, very similarly. So it's, to- so it's- so it's their effects. Their effects their are the effect. things that tell us. That, Absolutely. Yeah. You can see the consequence of, a, of an organism having been infected by a virus. And of course, you know, much more uh, classically, again, disease. People saw, for example, animal diseases, things, um, particularly when we had farmed animals, things that were killing chickens, for example. Um, people could see, scientists could see those effects. And then really, as has been applied to bacteria, um, you know, the, the, 
the postulates of Robert Koch were often applied to this. So the concept that there must be something inside uh, the diseased host that was causing this problem. And it, could you take it out and put it into another host and recapitulate that sort of clinical outcome? Uh, and, and if that was a purified uh, agent that could do that, then the concept was that is a uh, is the cause of the disease and uh, contains a microorganism or a, or a pathogen. Um, but as you say, how do we then get to them being viruses? Well, because they are inert, that, that they don't replicate on the outside, but they still cause this disease if you transfer them from one thing to another. Um, and for a long time, we couldn't see them at all without an electron microscope, but we could see their effects. You, you mentioned that they're, they're pretty much out there everywhere, that they, they can infect humans, as we know, they can infect even bacteria. So just how how many different viruses are there in, in the world? I mean, it, are we completely bombarded by them all the time or is it just when we get a cold? No, we're bombarded by viruses every minute of every day, I would imagine. I mean, the more that we use technologies such as sequencing, we can find viruses that we never dreamt existed in all kinds of samples of seawater, uh, in different animals. And what's very interesting is that, yes, I mean, there are thousands, tens of thousands of different viruses. But what's very interesting is that they do form at the moment into groups in, into things we can classify into groups. So I think what we will discover, whether or not it's from the point of view of the, the nucleic acids, the DNA that, that make them up, or the structures that they use to move themselves from one host to another, there's only a limited number of ways it would seem that, that biology can work. And so I think we will, we will see that viruses come in many different flavours of of the same kind of concept, if you like. So they, they diversified out from, from what is a workable um, sort of machine. Uh, there's lots of different versions of that, but there aren't that many different sorts of machines in the end of the day. There's only a certain number of ways to make this happen. So, uh, Wendy, you're definitely a, a great enthusiast for, for viruses, um, particularly um, these very small things, which are essentially just... Uh, a few genes in a, in a bit of protein to hold them together. Um, so why why are they so bothersome? Why, why do they cause us so much trouble? Are they are they out to get us? Is, is that what they're there for? No, I mean, a, a, a virus obviously has no intent whatsoever, but it is a perpetuating entity. So what a virus does is it replicates its piece of nucleic acid. It can be either DNA, like our own chromosomes, or RNA, ribonucleic acid. But at the end of the day, it's a nucleic acid that encodes the, the being of the virus. And, and the virus's only purpose, if it has a purpose, is to make more of itself. Uh, and it can do that inside a cell. Uh, the problem for the virus is that, that we, as hosts of the virus, and by we I mean us, animals, even plants, detect when that's going on. And we fight back, we try to stop that happening. And consequently, um, an ongoing battle ensues. Uh, often the cell that has been infected dies as a result of that battle. Um, the virus's purpose is to get out of that cell in thousands of copies of itself and onto the next cell as fast as it can. Um, but dead cells are, are often bad news for us. They can often leave behind hallmarks that alert our immune systems to things going wrong. And in fact, 
really all of the disease that we get from the virus is the consequence of our own bodies kind of turning on ourselves in an effort to get rid of the virus, but doing a lot of collateral damage along the way. So you got particularly interested in, in your career in influenza. How, how did that come about? So you, I, I guess you must have started as a virologist and then saw flu as the, the, the one to particularly to tackle. Yes, I, I guess so. I mean, I did my PhD actually in a very interesting place many years ago called the Common Cold Unit. Uh, and this was set up actually after the Second World War, um, when people realised that infectious agents such as cold viruses could be very bothersome when people were crowded into places like air raid shelters. Um, so this hospital, uh, in inverted commas, was set up on Salisbury Plain as a, as a testing centre uh, where one could research viruses and, and people volunteered to come there for a holiday um, in which they might or might not catch a cold. They, there was a sample of, of uh, cold virus put up their noses and then we did lots of experiments uh, to understand why some people did catch the cold and others didn't and whether or not their immune systems were protecting them and how long that immunity lasted. So I was always interested in these respiratory viruses from that perspective be because um, you know, it's it was back in the day, we didn't really have very good treatments for them. Uh, the vaccines were, were still in their sort of infancy, really. Um, but I realised that I was also absolutely fascinated by the concept that this tiny inert thing could cause such an effect on a complicated human being. Um, and I then went and, and trained and did some molecular virology. So, so to understand really what the, the nuts and bolts of the virus were, how, what was a virus made of? Uh, and could we pull it apart and understand what each of the different bits did and why some viruses cause more disease than others, et cetera, and how one might actually... And, and so was yeah. was that also at the at the Common Cold Unit? No. Or, then, or was that elsewhere? No, then I, I moved on actually to um, Reading University, first of all, uh, where some real pioneering work was being done to understand poliovirus, actually, and, and why um, poliovirus vaccines worked and, and uh, how, how we could improve those. Uh, and then, um, having worked on polio for a little while, I went back to the respiratory viruses uh, because at the time, uh, influenza virus was just becoming amenable to the molecular virological techniques uh, that allows you to, to pull apart the nuts and bolts of a virus and understand how it works. And I went out and did some training in New York where that was going on at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. And after that, I never looked back. Influenza was definitely the virus for me. Um, it was simple enough that one could aspire to understand it all, although I still don't think we do. Um, but also it was clear to me that influenza was a virus of huge importance for humans um, because it causes seasonal flu every year, uh, for animals because it causes animal flu in birds and pigs. Uh, and um, also, of course, with this pandemic potential, sort of somewhere in the middle from the One Health agenda, uh, everybody needed to know about flu. So I decided there was probably enough uh, funding possibilities to carry on a research looking at flu. And and you've you've had a, a very eminent career working on um, influenza. So with with these viruses, these influenza viruses, um, why is it that we can regularly get uh, flu infections, even though our immune system builds up immunity and should surely protect us from the virus. What what is it that the virus is doing that allows these regular infections? Well, the other the other absolutely essential thing to understand about viruses is that they are a means 
of evolution. Uh, and I almost think of it as sped up evolution. We can see evolution happening when we look at viruses almost in real time. Uh, which is something that's very rare from from other sort of biological perspectives and that's because um of two things one is that a virus is so small and it replicates very fast so in a matter of hours it has completed it replicating itself um but also uh, of course these things are error prone um because they are so simple they haven't evolved all, all the sort of checks and balances that we use to make to stop ourselves making mistakes when we replicate ourselves and therefore they make a lot of mistakes and what that means is that they actually have a lot of options when faced um, with adversity if you like uh, from a virus's point of view uh, adversity comes in the form of uh, encountering a person who has seen that virus before and has made a good immune response to it and usually that's antibodies and t-cells um, it's the antibodies for things like flu that stop us getting reinfected um, and a virus that's faced with antibodies uh, really has only one option which is to change the way it looks to the antibodies uh, in order to not be inhibited by them anymore uh, and what so, so really the virus so the virus is changing um by mistake yes but those mistakes turn out to be good for yes. it because it's now got a new version of itself which can avoid our immune responses yes i mean in fact it makes lots and lots of mistakes the vast majority of them really will be bad news for the virus because they could be deleterious they could stop the virus from working but one or two of them will be in just the right place that means the antibody can't see the virus anymore and those will be the fittest ones amongst the whole lot and therefore Darwinian selection will will happen and we'll see the evolution of the fittest virus amongst all its uh, sort of co-viruses co, um, that were made at the same time. So that, that might explain why a, a flu virus might survive in me if it's uh, causing an infection. Um, but what, what other characteristics does it need to make sure that you get infected as well? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the most important thing for a virus is really transmission. I mean, the only way for a virus to get from one person to another is actually to um, be expelled in small droplets that we cough, sneeze or just even breathe uh, and to be travelling through the air and then breathed in by the next person. And um, if that uh, if the mutations which allow the virus to uh, evolve in you and escape your antibodies uh, are good, in that they support onwards transmission uh, and they might even also allow that virus to infect me uh, because I've got some antibodies perhaps from the virus that I saw last year uh, but now that virus is good at transmitting and it's good at evading your antibodies and my antibodies then that's really going to be the virus which predominates um, amongst us in the future. So the virus the virus is there um looking at ways that it can avoid adversity, which is our immune system, and transmit from one person to another, it, it doesn't seem to make sense for the virus to then make people severely ill or even kill them. And of course, we know every winter people do die from influenza. So why why is that happening? It, it doesn't seem in, in the virus's interest to reduce the number of people around. Mm. Well, I don't think it is in the virus's interest to kill anybody, all the virus needs to do is to transmit from one person to the next. But if the virus transmits pretty early on during the infectious cycle, before a person even gets ill, then actually it doesn't matter to the virus very much what happens after that. Um, so 
if we have a, a virus like influenza, which perhaps is transmissible before uh, the symptoms are completely overt, uh, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, and the downstream um, sort of effects later on uh, can be devastating. So if that virus um, is remaining in a person, having transmitted onto the next, but is still replicating inside a person's lungs, uh, as those lung cells that get infected die and then immune cells flood into the lungs, then that's when we get this viral pneumonia. And th the balance of whether or not that's going to happen very much depends on a person's own immune fitness, if you like, whether or not they can fight the virus off in the early days, or whether or not that virus lingers in them for seven, 10 days, two weeks, during which time the person may well deteriorate in terms of, of health and lung function. And, and that's when we can see those, you know, very bad effects, including death. So the, all of this is controlled by the genes in the virus. Um, so do we know which genes it needs to spread well and which genes it needs to cause more severe disease? Well, certainly to, in terms of spreading, uh, there are two things really for transmission. One is that the virus needs to be stable enough in terms of its coat. So all viruses are, are um, a, a bag of nucleic acid carried around in a sort of capsid or coat. Uh, if that coat or capsid falls apart in those droplets as it's going from one person to the next, uh, then that's it, game over for the virus because the sunlight or the other environmental factors which that nucleic acid would be exposed to destroy the, the, the virus's genome and the genetic material is, is gone. Um, we know that the coat proteins, therefore, and the spike proteins of the virus are very important for transmission, the structural proteins that make the shape of the virus. Um, they're also the ones, of course, which latch onto cells and help the virus enter the cells that it's going to infect in the next host. And so if the virus is very good at binding very tightly to the cells of our nose and throat, it's going to be better at transmitting because the chances of it holding on and getting into those cells is, is increased. So transmission is, I think, very much about the structural basis of the virus, what the virus sort of physically looks like um, in terms of its capsid and coat. Um, Pathogenesis or the amount of disease the virus causes is much more complicated than that. The virus um, and the host have this ongoing battle in which the virus is trying to hide from the host for as long as it can to avoid being detected, uh, because as soon as it's detected, the host is going to try and shut it down. Um, the virus is going to try and replicate as fast as it can inside the host. So some of the the genes like the polymerase gene, which is the, the genes which carry out the replication of the genome, they're important for pathogenesis as well. So we've got immune evasion genes, you know, genes which help the virus hide from the host, and replication genes which help the virus go as fast as it possibly can, which to outpace the host. And sort of the combination of those two determine whether or not the virus is going to cause more damage, disease, infect more cells, uh, than it needs to, if you like, before the host actually recognises it and, sh and starts to shut it down. And that the outcome of that battle, if you like, that race is is what causes disease. So we, we've talked um, a lot over the last few years, um, since really December of 2020, about variants for COVID-19. So what you've just described with those slight alterations in flu viruses, it's had essentially the same process, that these are variants emerging that allow the virus to continue to spread, or, or is this a different concept? 
No, I mean, I think there are very many similarities in what we're seeing with the variants of SARS-CoV-2 <clears throat> as they've emerged. Um, what we what we saw in the beginning was that SARS-CoV-2 emerged from an animal source and caused this explosive pandemic. But actually, the very early phase of onward evolution of the virus in humans was very much in favour of better and better transmission. So as more and more of us had become infected with what we call the first wave virus, we built up some level of immunity, the virus didn't have anywhere to go. But what it did first was it got better at transmitting and it did that largely by getting better at binding the receptors on host cells it uses to enter. So getting better at sticking down to the cells of our nose and throat uh, and being more efficient at transmission. Then, as even more of us got infected and this sort of wall of antibody protection built up, um, the virus then started to change the way it looked to our immune system. And so what we what we now see very much in the Omicron era, particularly, are variant after variant emerging, which are just a little bit different than the last one. Uh, and we're seeing a very similar form of what we call drift which is what we see with those seasonal flu viruses we discussed, where each year the virus needs to change a little bit in order to avoid the antibodies that were made against it in people who were infected the year before or the year before that. So I, I, I suppose as someone who's been working on influenza and we've had multiple influenza pandemics over the last 150 years, the, the most prominent being the 1918 influenza pandemic or the Spanish flu, I guess you were sitting there waiting for the flu pandemic to, to, to work on. What, what is it, first of all, that makes a, a flu pandemic? What, what is different uh, compared with what we were just discussing on that drift that happens year by year? Mm. Yes, we certainly were all expecting a flu pandemic. Um, and, and still are. And, and still are, yes. Um, so the point about influenza is that it is widespread in animals, particularly in birds. Uh, and in those animals, it exists in, in many different forms uh, with a shape, if you like, the outside shape, it's spike proteins in particular, so different that no one in the world has ever seen any virus like that before. And there's no pre-existing immunity amongst the human population. So when such a virus uh, emerges from a bird and acquires the ability to transmit from person to person by some essential mutations, otherwise we don't have a pandemic. But if we have those essential mutations and the virus acquires the ability to transmit, it really has seven billion new human hosts to infect. Nobody has any uh, pre-existing immunity and we have what we call this explosive outbreak uh, known as a pandemic, which travels rapidly around the world, very much as we saw with COVID-19. Uh, sort of so there are so there are and there are multiple strains. I, I mean, you yeah. uh, you mentioned um, uh, the avian influenzas, but actually it's not just one. I mean, we're hearing about H five N one in the news at the mm -hmm. moment, but there are many different strains which could do that, which human populations have never seen. Absolutely. We, so we call those the subtypes, and we know that there are sixteen different hemagglutinin subtypes out there in, in birds. And we, we've also recently discovered two in bats, uh, which is always a bit of a worry, bearing in mind recent experience as well, because we know that, that viruses from bats can sometimes cross into people as well. So lots of different options uh, for the emergence of a different kind of influenza from an animal source than humans have ever seen before. Uh, and it really is just a matter of whether or not 
the virus uh, is is in a situation and is capable of acquiring the mutations which allow it to transmit between people. That's the only thing that stops us having more flu pandemics. So there's there's a lot of bird flu viruses out there and there's a lot of contact between humans and particularly domestic birds. So there must be lots of times when people do actually meet those uh, avian, the bird influenza viruses. So is it a surprise that we don't get regular pandemics or more regular pandemics than we do? Mm, Yeah. So, I mean, what happens when a person gets exposed to a high dose of virus, perhaps through uh, contact with a with a chicken uh, in a in a wet poultry markets or during um, farming is is that a person can be infected by that uh, chicken virus, let's say, could be an H5N1 or an H7N9. We have lots of instances over the last couple of decades of people being infected by those viruses and hundreds of people have actually died from that because it can be a very lethal um, disease. But we haven't seen any onward spread uh, through the air from person to person. And that really does seem to be the, the, the thing which restricts and stops us from having those pandemics. So it's a huge question as to why not. Um, And luckily for us, it seems that that, the acquisition of those mutations that are required to support onwards transmission is not straightforward. Often there are combinations of mutations required to do that. uh, And the virus uh, doesn't easily reach that in what we call evolutionary space. So although we've said earlier that influenza viruses and many viruses evolve very rapidly, there is a limit to, uh, if you like, the extent of evolution that any virus can can attain um, in one go. And if uh, in order to become a transmissible virus, uh, let's say an avian virus needs four or five changes, uh, if any one of those comes with what we'll call a fitness cost and makes the virus less good than it was, then it's quite possible that can never happen. It can't tra- traverse, you like, that fitness valley, as we say. So um, that may well explain why, in fact, we've only seen uh, influenza pandemics, uh, let's say, every few decades. We, we know of four since 1918. Uh, so they don't happen as often as they might, despite, as you say, this huge interface these days between humans, birds and other animals that carry influenza viruses such as pigs so so when we have those very severe infections um, as you mentioned with you know, over the last few decades hundreds of people dying from bird flu infections so though the virus there has been able to attach on to human cells and infect them uh, particularly in the lung because they seem to largely get very severe pneumonia as, as the cause of death does that mean that the virus can have a different predilection from uh, where it likes to bind, whether it binds in the lung or in the upper airway? And is that to do with whether or not spread happens? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we know is that the way the virus gets into its natural host, which is the birds, is by using a certain receptor on the bird cells, uh, which uh, those avian viruses are very good at using. Uh, Our versions of receptors that influenza viruses that infect people use are just slightly different. They're a different shape. So the lock and key is mismatched. We do have some of the avian-like receptors in our deep lung. And so what we think happens is that when a person is exposed to, let's say, an aerosol, perhaps some dust that's, a, that's coming around in a, in a 
marketplace. Uh, virus in those particles can penetrate to the lung and can enter human cells using those avian-like receptors in the deep lung. And that person can end up getting a very severe infection and a viral pneumonia. But the virus stays deep in the lung and doesn't come back out. In order to spread through the air, these viruses really need to go into our nose and throat and come out from our nose and throat. That's the most efficient way for them to get from person to person. And only by changing its shape uh, does the avian influenza um, learn to bind to the human types of receptors in the upper respiratory tract and undergo that human to human transmission. And that's what I'm saying is rather difficult for those avian viruses to do. And when pandemics happen, is that because an avian virus acquires mutations or is it because of some mixing of avian viruses with human viruses? Is that the thing we should be most worried about rather than the bird flu viruses themselves? Mm. Well, it's actually both. Um, so the mixing uh, we know is, uh, let's say, happened a prelude to the two pandemics that were rather well studied in the 20th century so for influenza there was a big pandemic uh, known as the asian flu in 1957 and then another one known as the hong kong flu in 1968 and we can see now from sequencing the viruses that caused those that they had um, a combination of genetic elements from viruses that were in birds and viruses that were in humans at the time and made a very quick switch uh, to become humanized. We think that might have happened in pigs because we know that um, pigs can be infected by human viruses and avian influenza viruses, and sometimes are called the mixing vessel in which this sort of recombination event can happen between viruses of the different species. However, it is important to say that that on its own is not enough for the virus to switch the receptors that it binds to and, and spread from nose to nose, from person to person. So what probably is needed is that mixing up inside a mixing vessel and then further revolution, either in the pig or in an exposed person uh, to, to sort of select out the fittest viruses which will transmit from nose to nose. And the combination of those events causes a pandemic. So with the, uh, the the emergence of COVID-19 at the end of 2019, and we really knew about it in early 2020, um, were, were you, when you first heard about this uh, pneumonia happening in Wuhan in China, were you thinking this has to be influenza? Or was there anything that made you think it could be a different virus uh, right at the beginning? Um, well, I, I suppose we all thought it could be an influenza. Um, but we also were cognizant that uh, a different coronavirus known as SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-Coronavirus had emerged in that part of the world uh, some sort of 15, 20 years earlier. Uh, and so uh, it, clearly coronaviruses were also on the radar. Um, indeed, we'd also been thinking quite a lot about the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, which... Um, had you know emerged uh, in the Middle East, but also been seen in parts of Asia, um, almost spreading from person to person. I mean, causing the sort of size of outbreak that we'd be very concerned about in terms of thinking this this could be a pandemic bubbling up and about to happen. So I guess and I, I, I suppose also we we knew very early on 
from sequencing that it was a coronavirus, yeah. which is which is extraordinary, really, when you when you think back. Yeah, that, uh, just second week of January, I think we already knew that it was a coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all credits to, um, you know, the various Chinese scientists who managed to get that sequence out and distributed to the world, because, of course, it was vital for things like vaccine production as well. Um, so not terribly concerned, not terribly, sorry, not terribly surprised that it was a coronavirus. I think those early months then came back to the big question was, was this virus going to spread more widely than the first SARS coronavirus did, uh, which thankfully we managed to control back in 2003-04. You, you talked about the uh, the parallels with influenza around variants and their emergence and actually I, I, I think fascinating comment that um, Omicron really looks as if it's behaving much more like uh, an influ seasonal influenza virus just drifting a little bit all the time to persist in human populations. So back at the beginning it's more like a pandemic flu, a completely new strain coming into a completely naive human population that's acquired the genes to spread. Do, do you have a, a sense of the the origins, there's a lot of controversy about the origin theory, but it's clearly an animal virus originally. However, whether it came from a wet market or a lab, I think is to some extent irrelevant to the scientific discussion about uh, its its uh, initial origins. But it's clearly an animal virus to start with. Mm. Yes, I mean clearly we can find viruses very very similar to the SARS-CoV-2 and indeed SARS-CoV-1 in bats, uh, and it seems obvious to me that um, the origin of this virus is in bats. Um, one of the fascinating things which we see, uh, and I think makes that important difference in terms of transmission, is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has this extra piece in the middle of its spike protein, which is known as the furin cleavage site. And that's been um, sort of um, hotly studied and also discussed in terms of, you know, this controversy between is it a lab creation or, or, or an emergence of a, of a natural origin. Um, you know, we have seen other coronaviruses with furin cleavage sites. In fact, even the MERS coronavirus has such a one. So we know and, and that that comes from camels, we think. We think so. Through, but but possibly the even the originator of the MERS coronavirus is a bat virus, which has passed into camels, and then um, through zoonotic exposure, usually uh, people who handle camels then can acquire the infection, and then there can be some very limited onwards person to person transmission. But um, yeah, I think that uh, it looks very obviously to me that all of these coronaviruses have animal hosts, that bats are a hugely important host for coronaviruses, and that there's a huge amount of recombination uh, between coronaviruses in nature, very much like... So re recombination means they're sharing their genes. Yeah, so very much like we said with the mixing vessel concept with influenza and bird viruses and human viruses mixing up in pigs, it looks like... Um, Bats can themselves be co-infected with two different coronaviruses, and then we see uh, that the, the viruses that emerge from such co-infections are actually mixtures of the original two in all sorts of different combinations, which gives the viruses extra ability to evolve in a sort of jump forward way rather than little drifts. So I, I, I think, therefore, um, 
probably we should keep away from bats as much as possible. You, you've mentioned them quite a few times uh, as as sources of some of these viruses. So now that we're, we're in a very different uh, phase with COVID-19, um, can we predict what variants are going to come next? I mean, because surely that's the way that we can really get ahead of this. Yeah, I think it's a great question and the one that uh, we absolutely have to be focusing on at the moment. What do we expect now? I mean, I think we're in we have two obvious possibilities. One is that we continue to see drift. So Omicron appears to be a successful virus in terms of transmitting widely. It's, we still have high prevalence around the world. Thankfully, uh, because of vaccines and previous infection, a lot of people are getting the virus, getting infected, but not getting terribly sick from it. And I think that really does set up a scenario for onwards drift with little, little tiny changes accumulating over time. But the other possibility that is more worrying, and I think we have to keep in the back of our minds, is that we think that the uh, at least some of the variants of concern that have emerged over the last few years, including variants like the first one, Alpha, which we think originated in the UK, but also Omicron itself. Um, we think that they may have emerged from people who became chronically infected, perhaps individuals whose immune systems don't work very well, uh, immunocompromised people who have long term infections and in whom the virus continues to replicate for hundreds of days accumulating stepwise mutations, but when that virus finally emerges, there may be 10, 20, or even 50 changes in that virus compared to the virus that went in in the first place. And these big step changes, the variants of concern that we've seen so far, they can look extremely different to the whole population than anything that we've seen out there circulating already. So um, also, what we find at the moment is that Omicron itself is perhaps a slightly milder uh, virus than some of the earlier variants. For example, Delta um, seems to be quite um, pathogenic. And so what we really don't want to happen is perhaps a Delta variant emerging from a long-term infected person, looking very different to our immune system, but perhaps keeping hold of some of the more disease-causing uh, properties that Delta itself had. Um, I still think that our vaccines will protect the vast majority of people from serious disease in those cases, but um, it could mean that the, the number of people who get infected and the number of more severe infections we see would, would go up in a more significant way than we've seen so far. So that, that's more in, in the context, like with seasonal flu, where the particularly frail and vulnerable in, in a society are, are more at risk rather than pandemic levels of, of deaths and, and so on. Yes, I mean... Because I, that, would, that, that, that would need a new virus to, to emerge, a completely separate one. I think, I think it would, yes. I mean, the, the, there is a possibility that as decades pass, uh, some of these older variants that may have seeded in even into wild animals uh, could re-emerge. I mean, that's the thing we've seen with flu again. You know, the 2009 swine flu pandemic was a pandemic um, and uh, came to us from pigs. Uh, it had remained rather evolutionary static in pigs, uh, but the younger people who'd never seen such a virus in their lifetime then were quite vulnerable to that virus. 
So, you know, we know that coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is seeding into some wild animals, uh, white-tailed deer, for example. We don't really understand why, but those seem to be a vulnerable population. And the virus is beginning to sort of diverge uh, from the animal form and the human form. And the, just that possibility that it can come back into humans at any time in the future is, is a cause for concern. So, uh, Wendy, you had a major role during the pandemic in advising the government as a virologist. Um, what was your experience of doing that? Has, has, has that been a con- completely all-consuming uh, in trying to, to share your knowledge to help inform the, the pandemic policymaking? Well, I think, I think looking back on it now, uh, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to use you know, some of the experience and knowledge that I'd accumulated uh, if you like, in in real time, Um, tremendously enlightening experience to see teamwork uh, at its best, I think. So, you know, a committee of experts comprising not only virologists, but immunologists and also mathematical modelers and people who think about behaviour and seeing how all of those different voices around the table really come together to sort of try to make a balanced argument, all the different perspectives. Um, So one learned a huge amount, uh, as well as being able to contribute and really just was called upon, you know, in very specific uh, circumstances with very specific questions, which I think is quite right. But, But the ability to listen to all of the other points of view is really, really wonderful. So that was the government's SAGE committee, yes. which uh, uh, helped uh, uh, provide the scientific advice to government to inform policy. So, Wendy, what do you do in your spare time? You've been pretty focused on viruses. So what, what, do, what do you do when you're not doing viruses? Do you, do you have hobbies or other things that you spend time yeah, with? Yes, I do. I mean, I like to sail. Um, so we have a boat, um, just been way no, for Easter. Not in London, though. No, no, not in London. Yeah. Down on the Solent, on the south of England. Um, my my two sons were were big dinky sailors when they were growing up, so we used to go and watch them racing. But now we just sail for pleasure, um, pootling about on the water. Um, and I do play um, the piano, and I don't do that as often as I'd like. But it's perhaps one of my ambitions to get back to that and sort of switch off the science and just indulge in the music for a bit. So if you if you weren't a virologist, what would you be doing instead? Would you be a sailor, perhaps? Mm. Well, that's a, that's a question actually. I've been asked almost twice in a week, and the, so the answer I the answer I gave was I think I would have liked to have been in an orchestra. So I did also play the clarinet when I was younger, and I I was lucky enough to be in a youth orchestra. But when I got to university, everybody else was so much better that it, and I didn't have time either to, to carry on. But I think the nice thing about an orchestra is that everybody plays their instrument, you know, to the best of their ability. Um, but by all contributing together, you sort of make this lovely piece of music. And that, you know, going back to what you were asking about, you know, being on advisory committees, I sort of think it's a bit like that. You sort of practice your little bit and, and when it's your turn for the solo pipe up and do it and then sort of stay quiet but listen to everybody else but at the end of it you do feel like you've achieved something together which is quite rewarding yes i, I wonder who was on symbols at that uh, sage <laughs> professor wendy barclay uh, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast and sharing your insights about influenza viruses and our recent friend covid19 thanks for having me andy 
that was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having.